You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the presence-driven life, not the purpose-driven life. You know, we have this overemphasis in the Christian movement about the purpose-driven life. And, I, and I'm not against finding identity and purpose, and I think that's important and we should value that. However, I think many times our destiny in Christ can become an idol, and we're more concerned about getting to the end result of what God's called us to than the journey of fellowship with the presence along the way. You know, oftentimes I've been guilty of this, where, where you get around a prophetic culture, a prophetic movement, and people start you know, speaking over you about who you're supposed to be and what you're called to do and where you're called to go. And, and, and that, that stirs excitement in us, and it should, because it's important. However, when we overvalue or overemphasize our purpose or our destiny or the end result, we will seek that over the presence of God, and God is more into the process in the journey than you standing at the end result or the climax of what you're called to do in life. God is more into the journey over the end result. If God was more concerned about the end result, He could have easily caused you to bypass the journey. But something happens in the journey. And that something that takes place is knowing God. Knowing who He is. And I think we've adopted this thing called destiny and purpose and it's become an idol. We overemphasize who we are in Christ and our purpose and destiny. And what that causes us to do is minimize the crucifying of our life to inherit the presence of God. You know, there is this thing called the narrow road. There is this thing called crucifying your flesh and crushing your dreams and ambitions. There's a very fine line between God's dreams and your dreams. Jesus calls us to walk in this realm called the kingdom. And I think, Pastor, we in the church know more about the church than the kingdom. We know more about church culture than kingdom culture. And to be a part of a church, good life-giving church, all you got to do is sign your name on a piece of paper and come every now and then and tithe occasionally. To be a part of the kingdom, you've got to give up your life. Let me say it this way. Salvation is even free. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, it's free, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You didn't do nothing to earn your salvation. You didn't do anything to 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 with your good behavior or anything other than faith in Jesus Christ to inherit salvation in eternity. Salvation is free, but to walk in the realm of the kingdom that Jesus said is available will cost you everything. It'll cost you your friends. It'll cost you your reputation. It'll cost you your pride. It'll cost you maybe, maybe your career. 
Maybe your biggest dreams and ambitions, Jesus may call you to lay those down to inherit this thing He calls the kingdom. Often we don't understand the kingdom the way Jesus taught it is because we read the scripture and we think of the kingdom in, in, in relation to eternity. But Jesus didn't teach on the kingdom in relation to eternity only. 95% of the time Jesus talked about the kingdom, He was talking about right here, right now, life on earth. When His disciples asked, How to pray. He said, pray this way. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom. Well, if salvation is free, then why did Jesus tell us to seek the kingdom? Salvation is free. Let me say it this way. If the kingdom happens at salvation, then why did Jesus tell us to seek it with everything we have? What if the kingdom was not your ticket into eternity, but it was a lifestyle that we were called to inherit as believers. However, here's what I believe. I believe that good Christians who love God, that will go to heaven when they die, will never inherit the kingdom. Good Christians, many Christians, many good Bible-believing, tithing, faithful Christians that will go to heaven when they die, but will never really experience the fullness of the kingdom right here on this earth because they have not chosen to give up their ambitions and live a life postured for the Lord to move through them through a complete, total abandonment to the things of this world and culture. That's why Jesus tells the young rich ruler. You're familiar with the story of the young rich ruler. It actually has that title above it where it says the young rich ruler. I believe that's a poor title. The title should translate a poor young slave. But this young rich ruler who comes to Jesus says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him basically, you know, keep the commandments and all this stuff. And he said, well, I've done all that since I was a little boy. In essence, I have walked in purity. I've done everything the law requires of me. I've done everything. And Jesus, according to his statement there, said the young boy had eternal life. But he says, but but one thing you're lacking, and I don't think it was eternal life. I think it was the kingdom. And he says, one thing you're lacking is this. Go sell all that you have, then come follow me. The young man analyzes that statement. He looks at all of his possessions, and he looks at the cost of giving up all those possessions and following Jesus, and he begins to have this just turmoil in his heart that he could not let go his things that he had. And so he walks away very disgruntled and very sad, and Jesus makes a statement. He says this. He says, it's hard for a rich man... To enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about salvation there. He's talking about the reality of the presence-driven life of the kingdom of heaven. Right here on earth and him inheriting that. He says it's hard for a rich man to inherit that. Well, We know that that's not talking about salvation because salvation's free again. Like I said. So what does that mean? He, said, he says this. He says it's easier... For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he's in love with all of his possessions more than he is for the reality of, king, of the kingdom of God coming to the earth. What does the kingdom look like? Well, I think it looks like heaven on earth. Signs, wonders, and miracles. I think it looks like everywhere you go, heaven goes with you. I think it looks like this. I think it looks like agreeing in your heart that your Christianity is more than just a Sunday morning attendance, but it's a lifestyle in fellowship with Yahweh. 
You know, everywhere Jesus went, the sick got healed. Everywhere Jesus went, blind eyes were open. Why? Well, he lived in this realm of the kingdom where the authority of heaven surrounded him. And do you know that's available for you and I? But in order for us to walk in that availability, we have to value the presence of Yahweh, the presence of Almighty God, more than anything else in your life. It's got to be more important than the air you breathe, the food you eat. The presence of God has to be more important than your relationship with your spouse, than your relationship with your kids even. The presence of God has to be more important than anything. I like what Bill Johnson says. He says, you know, when the dove rested on Jesus, how would you walk if a dove was on your shoulder? You'd walk every step with the dove in mind. And the presence has to be that valuable that everything you do in life, you have every step with the presence of God in mind. What if we lived our life that way? I think we'd see culture shift. I think we'd see a radical transformation. So in the contrast of the presence-driven and purpose-driven, I also want to give you the contrast a little bit between church and kingdom. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. I cannot move forward without reading this. And how much time do I have, Pastor? Are we, what time do we need to be out of here? Don't say whenever I'm done, y'all, because I'm telling you, I'll be here all day. 11.45, 11.40-ish. Okay, so i got about 30 minutes. That's enough time. A preacher's 45 minutes, translated into two more hours. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I want to move quickly. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, say suddenly, suddenly. there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. I love that. You know what that communicates? Everyone gets a fire. A tongue of fire didn't just rest on Peter. A tongue of fire didn't just rest on James. Everyone in the upper room got an individual personal flame. So, you don't just rally around your pastor's fire. You don't just rally around your worship leader's fire. Everybody in the household of faith gets a personal, individual flame of the Spirit that rests on each of you. I love that. That's good news. Come on, I don't have to depend on somebody else's anointing anymore to get me through my week. Hallelujah. I can get my own. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. I love this because this communicates at the sound of the worship and the roar of the Spirit, people started to wonder what was happening and they came in awe looking. What would happen if our meetings had a sound of the Spirit that the community no longer made fun of what we do, but they come in awe and wonder because of the unction of the Spirit that's wooing them to the house of God again. 
Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these men, all these who speak Galileans, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Alamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and other parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking and saying, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since this is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on some flesh, on a few flesh, on all flesh, on all flesh. Come on, on all flesh. That's good stuff. Come on, so there's no excuse that God hasn't chosen you or called you or given you what's available. There's more than you need is available. On all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream, dream, dream dreams. And on my maid, men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I love this and I wanted to give you Acts chapter 2 before I move on because Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church. It's... It's really um, where what we call the Pentecostal movement um, we could derive from, from really this. Not Azusa Street, this. And can I tell you, the same Holy Spirit that encountered these men is the same Holy Spirit that lives with you and I right now. Amen. You don't need a mantle from Reinhardt Bunky. You don't need a mantle from Benny Hinn. You don't need a mantle from any great giant. What you need is the Holy Ghost... And that Holy Ghost has everything you need that will quicken your spirit and bring life and glory. And we see something very interesting happen here. These, these apostles, these believers, these women, these men, 120 in an upper room, they're praying. But in Acts chapter 1, we see something, a statement from Jesus that He says to them in Acts chapter 1. He says, wait in Jerusalem until... The promise of the Father. They had no idea what this was going to look like. They had no idea. All they had was a word, and the word was wait until. They gathered in an upper room, and they prayed, and they waited until. What would it look like, Pastor, if we had prayer meetings that we just waited until? That our agenda and our time went out the window... And all of our things that we feel like are important, that we check off the box, we just put out the way and we say, we're going to encounter God, and if it means we have to wait until. Do you recognize, friend, that this was 10 days they waited until? 10 days praying, tarrying. And I don't believe it was 10 days of burdensome, oh, how long do we have to be here, pacing the sanctuary, looking at our watch, 
10 days Jesus said he was going to come. I believe there was so much joy and anticipation in the upper room encounter that they were walking around with smiles. Like, oh man, I don't know what this thing's going to look like, but it's going to be amazing. We're, we're rejoicing because of the cross. We're rejoicing because of the resurrection. We're rejoicing because there's a promise that's coming that Jesus said it's coming. Jesus hasn't failed us yet. He's not going to fail us now. The tomb couldn't keep him down. We're going to wait until we inherit something that's going to transform our life. The reason why we don't inherit a greater portion is because we have so many other things in our life that get in the way of waiting until. And Jesus is saying, can I be number one again? Can I be number one again? You know, the church in Ephesus, Revelation, they were a, a, a church that was moving and shaking. Paul planted this church with his son Timothy, spiritual son, and Paul gave this church the revelation of being in Christ. This church had the revelation of the fivefold the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, the evangelist, for the equipping of the saints and the work of the ministry. This church had the revelation of the full armor of God and how to wage warfare against principalities and powers. Church history teaches that Mary, the mother of Jesus, moved to Ephesus to be a part of that church and spent the rest of her days there as a believer. Talk about pressure as a pastor when you got the mother of Jesus sitting on the front row. This church was apostolic. They were multiplying. They were planting. They were shaping culture. Paul commends them in his letters for their labor of love. But time goes by and they get another letter from Jesus through John the Beloved in Revelation chapter 2. And this time the letter was not an encouragement about a labor of love. This time the letter was a rebuke. As a matter of fact, he said this, I know your labor. I know your works. I know your patience. You're doing all these great things. You're judging those that are calling themselves apostles. And you've got enough discernment that you're proving the right from the wrong. And you guys are moving and you're shaking. And you've got a name in the city that, that you're doing all this great stuff. However, nevertheless, I have this one thing against you. And this one one thing wipes out all the things that you're doing right. You've left your first love. This is what he tells them. Repent, return back to your first works, and if you don't, I'm coming quickly, and I'm going to take away your lampstand. And what that lampstand represents is influence. Because the light sits on top of the lampstand. Jesus is the light, but the stand is our influence that the Father has given us. And Jesus says, I'm going to take your influence because you're not influencing people properly. You've got, a, you've got all the works and the mechanics and the mechanisms and you're doing great church and you're doing, you're doing great family outreach, but, but all this stuff is really meaningless if you don't have first love in your life, if you're not beating for me every day in your heart when you wake up, if I'm not the first one that you think about when you go to bed, if I'm not the last thing that you think about. And some people say, that's just crazy, that's legalistic. No, 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 friend, that's love. He says this, he says, return to your first works because there's something that is generated in first works 
that remind you of where your heart was when you first encountered him. I don't know about you, but when he rescued me, he pulled me out of the bottom of the barrel. I wasn't one of these guys that just had a smooth road in life and just nice Bible college. You just one day decided that I wanted to be in ministry. No, it's not a career for me. It's a calling. And it's not a calling just with, tied to a destiny. It, it, is, it is because I'm in love with Him. And He rescued me from my shame and my addiction and my bondage and my alcoholism and my drug use. And He rescued me from my lifestyle of debauchery and He pulled me out of the miry clay and He set my feet upon a rock and He lit my heart on fire with passionate love. And I could, I could think about those early years, 14, 15 years ago when he first touched me. And I believe what Jesus was communicating to the church of Revelation is return back to your first works. Because first works remind you of where your heart was when you used to be there. It's kind of like your wife. What do you do when you go on an anniversary? You reminisce on all the years. Maybe you go back to the place of where you had the first date or the first kiss or, or the first time you said I do. And all of a sudden, all those emotions and feelings are, are all of a sudden starting to flow back into your heart because you remember based on where you were and what you were doing. And maybe it was a meal you ate together. Maybe it was a cruise you took. And Jesus is saying, when you've left your first love, remember where you were and do what you used to do. Listen to the old songs if you have to. On some of you that may be maybe back in Toronto days, or maybe maybe it's old hymns. I don't know what it what it looks like for you, but but if you've lost that passion today, he wants to restore presence to you again. He doesn't want to just give you just dry works-driven Christianity. He wants the motor to be generated by love, by love, by pursuit, by by faithful, consistent, lovesick driven crazy I'm in love with you I don't care what anybody thinks about this love type relationship I want to read you something 2 Samuel chapter 6 1 through 18 and then we're going to we're going to shift into this and I believe God's going to restore some hearts again in this in this place to where maybe maybe you're a worker maybe you're a ministry leader maybe you're an elder I'm telling you don't let your position get in your way of first love today don't, 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 let, don't let what you do for God, again, don't let your destiny get in the way of valuing the presence the way it's supposed to be valued. 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 through 18. 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 through 18. And David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who are with him from Bel Judah to bring from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood and 
on harps and stringed instruments and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of God... Excuse me. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. And God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the, ark of the, by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was. When those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep, then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Fascinating, fascinating story. In the Old Testament, the ark of God was a representation where the presence of God is today. It was really where the presence of God dwelled in the ark of God. And when you read that in New Testament contrast, it represents the presence of Almighty God. There was this group of people that were always at war with Israel. The Philistines, this nation, I believe represents a, a, a group of people that, that want to kill the move of the Spirit. The Philistines always represented, or they always saw how God blessed Israel, and they always saw, they watched how when Israel would go into battle, that the presence of God in the ark of God would go first with the worship team, and God would use that to confound the enemy and cause the enemy to turn on each other. And God would use this ark to, to signify the blessing and signify that the Lord of hosts was with them fighting their battles, that it wasn't in their strength. And the Philistines saw this, and they begin to see that the presence of God through the ark was the very generator that equated their success. So they had the strategy, if we can take that from them, they will be an ineffective people. So they took it, they stole it, they, they harbored it. And Israel, in their strategy to obtain it back, with, with watching how they transported this ark, they watched the Philistines transport the ark on a cart, which was different for them because that was not the way they were carrying the ark. Israel was commanded by the Father to carry the ark through the Levitical priesthood. The ark was huge, it was heavy, but the priests, they had to put poles through the outer loops of the ark and four priests had to carry the ark upon their shoulders. 
And they would walk, and it was heavy, and it was burdensome. But God was teaching them something. That carrying the presence will cost you something. They watched as the Philistines built this cart, and they had ox, and it had wheels. And they thought to themselves, what a great idea. Seems like a good idea. Seems like it would be very convenient as we transport this ark back to Jerusalem. So the ark was at Abinadab's house and Uzzah and Ahio and these sons of Abinadab were in charge of transporting this ark and so they built this cart. They thought what a fascinating idea this would be. Let's build the cart and let's transport it back. But along the journey, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reaches out his hand to try to protect the cart and the ark from falling And God strikes him dead right there. David becomes angry. He says, wait a minute. This is crazy. Let's stop. Let's find a house nearby. Happened to be the house of Obed-Edom. And he said, send the ark to his house until further notice. And so the king's soldiers, as you can imagine, when they come and knock at your door, you do what they say. And they begin to knock at the door of Obed-Edom. And they say, by the way, the king has issued a command. The ark is going to remain here. By the way, it just killed the guy. So, be careful. And if you're Obed-Edom, you're thinking to yourself, what in the world has just happened? My life is getting ready to be rearranged. Honey, we got to watch the kids. Honey, they can't just run crazy anymore. Honey, we've got to really be careful what we talk about around this ark. Honey, we've got to be careful what we watch on television now that the ark is in our living room. We've got to rearrange our lifestyle because the presence of God just showed up. And there's a lot of people that when the presence shows up, they refuse to readjust their lifestyle to continue to host the presence of God. See, Jesus showed up many places, but very few places did he stay a while. It's easy to get him to come. A lot of churches can get him to come on Sunday morning, but does he leave with you when you go home? And Obed-Edom had to rearrange his lifestyle to host this ark, and all of a sudden David goes back to Jerusalem. And, you know, this ark concept on top of a cart, I believe it's something that we see still in church today. Is that we can have a building, and we can have a service, and we can have a worship team, and we can do it all generated on a new cart or a new idea. But I believe the Lord is wanting the church to get back to its roots of generating a movement that would value the presence of God. And the presence of God is not something that's convenient. And you don't get the presence of God by just casually showing up. You get the presence of God on your life when you value it, and you're like the Levitical priest that you're going to carry it even if it's heavy, even if it costs you something. You're not going to put it on a new cart. And I know we've got a bunch of new carts in North America that we want to shorten down services and say you can't pray in tongues anymore because that scares people and and we want to just dim down everything and not talk about the blood and not preach the powerful truth in the gospel and all it is is a new cart and it's killing people left and right and I'm looking for some people in Cold Lake that'll say as for me and my house we are going to serve the Lord we want the presence of God no matter what it costs us So David hears a rumor. He's on the throne. 
He's got his entourage. He's got servants. He's leading Israel. And he hears this rumor in the land. Hey, David, something's missing in your life. But Obedi Dumb has it. It's this thing called favor. It's this thing called blessing. Hey, David. Hey, David. It looks like you have the blessing, but it's really just material stuff. And Hey, David, you're sitting there on your throne, and you've got your scepter, and you've got your, your gold, and you've got your servants, and you've got your maidservants, and you've got your, your choice food at the table. But, but David, let me tell you about Obedidam. He doesn't have all that, but God's doing something in his household. And, and I believe when David heard that, something welled up on the inside of him. And he started to remember when he was a young 17-year-old boy and he didn't have the throne and he didn't have the people following him and he didn't have the success and he didn't have the ministry and he didn't have the position. But all he could remember was being that young 17-year-old boy underneath the stars and beside a fire and he had his stringed instrument and his harp and he would dance around that fire and the presence of God was with him. And he started to remember... It wasn't my success that caused me to kill Goliath. It was the presence. It wasn't my good warfare tactics that killed the lion and the bear when they came after the sheep. It was the presence. The only thing that makes us successful is the presence. A rich man is not a man that has a following. A rich man is not a man that has a lot of money. I'm telling you what a rich man is. A man that goes home and he gets in his vehicle and he knows how to weep in front of his kids. Because the presence has so marked his life. I tell our men back home, what makes you a man is not the fact that you can work hard and keep a job. What makes you a man is not the fact that you can hunt and fish and do all these manly things. What makes you a man is when you can stand at the altar with your hands lifted high and you can worship Jesus with all of your heart. What makes you a man is when your kids know their father as a man of the presence. That's a man. David wasn't a man because he ran into battle and killed a giant. David was a man because he knew how to value The presence of God. And so David decides this time, I'm going to get this right. This time, the new cart. This time, the systems of religion are coming down. This time, everything that we're doing to try to keep people pleased is coming down. This time, I'm breaking the back of everything that man has built. And I'm getting this thing back to the foundation. It's going to be centered around the presence of God. If there's anything I can give you this, this morning, if there's anything I can give leadership here is, is everything you do, make sure it's around the presence. Not just because it's because it's what the PAOC does at large. Not just because it's what it worked down the church. No, no, no. No, don't spend your life trying to figure out what's going to reach this community because it worked into another city. I'm telling you, get in the presence and let God speak to you. And he's going to show you what your identity is with your personal flame here at Cold Lake Community Church. And if people leave, that's okay. Because God's got a harvest out there. He's got a harvest of wild ones that they don't want religion. They want something authentic and they want something real. 
And I'll take the crack addict and I'll take the meth addict and the prostitute that wants something real any day of the week over somebody that just wants religion on a new cart. I want the presence to touch lives. I tell my church all the time, if you're going to follow me, you're going to find people around you that the rest of the church does not want. But I know a man that wants them. I know a man that left his seat of heaven in eternity and came to earth, wrapped himself in flesh and gave his life up for them. I want the addict. I want the prostitute. I want them all. And I sense in the spirit that God is wanting to do a new thing in this house. I sense in the spirit, pastor, that God is wanting to do a new thing here. He's wanting to do something that that would mark this community. Something that when the world sees this place, they don't see just another local church on the road that's just like everyone else, but that's a place that loves unconditionally. That's a place that, that you can go there and you can get prayer and you can get healed there. There's a well of healing, I sense the Father saying here. Healing well. Come on, the Bible talks about an angel that would come down and stir the waters and people would see that angel stir the waters and they would roll in here. I sense angelic presence stirring the waters here to bring healing and revival and where people in this community that, that may not be able to get healed from their doctor or may be on a waiting list to get healed, they're going to be able to come here. And I see hips being put back together. I see people that have had hip replacements in this room that God's going to cause you to walk normal again. I'm, hear, I'm hearing the Lord say, I'm going to open deaf ears in this room. I'm going to open blind eyes. I'm telling you, cancer is going to be illegal on this property. That when people step on this property, cancer has to leave. Ho ho! David hears the rumor that Obed-Edom's blessed and he begins to, to remember. I think that that's a word for leaders that have lost the presence. There's a lot of friends that I, I, I have had over the years. Friends that I used to roll on the carpet with and weep in revival. Friends that are pastoring large mega churches today, and you walk in those churches, and 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 and, and I, I'm just ashamed to say, you, you, it's very rare to even find God there, because they wanted the ark on a convenient cart. But I believe what God's doing in leaders' hearts is they're going to hear the rumors of places like this. And they're going to say, how in the world does a church of 300 people have that kind of resource to touch a city? And all you're going to be able to attribute it to is it's because we value the presence of God. And just like David, David heard the rumor and he went back to Obed-Edom's house and he said, okay, sir, this ark has to leave. And this time he did it a little bit different. The priest carried it, but every couple steps they made a sacrifice. Every couple steps along the journey. This would have taken several weeks, friend, if you understand this properly. Every step they put the ark down. They killed a calf. They made an offering to the Lord. And the worship team sang a song to the Lord. And then they picked up the ark again. They took a couple more steps. They set it down. They killed another sacrifice. They let that sacrifice go to the Lord. The worship team sang again songs of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. They did this every step of the way back into Israel, back into Jerusalem. Obed-Edom was now in the same place David was. The Bible tells us in Chronicles that Obed-Edom left everything behind just so that he could be a doorkeeper in the presence of God where the ark dwelt. 
Oh, Betty Dom said, it'll be better for me to be a doorkeeper. You can't take that away from me. That presence changed my family's life. I'm willing to move and relocate myself if I have to. You're not going to take away from me what I had, David. And I may not be able to sing and I may not be able to dance and play an instrument, but I'll be a doorkeeper where the ark dwells. And Obedidum relocated his life, Chris. Because he wasn't going to allow the most important thing to be stolen from him. I wonder if there's anybody in here this morning that you remember a time in your life where you didn't know the songs and you didn't know church protocol and you, you, you didn't know you didn't know you didn't know what to say to people you didn't know bless you brother how you doing today praise the Lord you didn't know all the lingo and I wonder if you remember a time where you didn't know religion but you knew that God touched you and marked you in a way. That was so real. Can you just think about, maybe you've never had that, today's your day to have that. Maybe you've, maybe you've never encountered him that way. I want to tell you, friend, he wants to encounter you in a real way today. But can you just, can you just remember? Where were you? What were you doing? Where were you at? You did you didn't know all the stuff you know now, but you were so in love with Him. And you'd wake up in the middle of the night if He nudged your spirit to wake up and pray and you couldn't wait to get to the house of God. You were there early and you loved everybody and you'd run up to people and hug them tight. And, and you had something in your eyes. And what was in your eyes was the love of God. It was the eyes of freedom. It was the eyes of a changed person. It was the eyes that were fearless that you didn't care about who knew that you were a Christian. You were a changed person and you wanted to tell the whole world. But somewhere along the journey, somewhere along the way religion came in, somewhere along the way we became churched and we left this thing called the kingdom and this thing called carrying the presence and, and we just became content with just, with just this just normality of of. Just going through the motions and Jesus is calling you back this morning to first love. Jesus is saying, before I can do anything else, I need you. I need your heart. I need you back to that place of, of where it was just me and you. Come on, do you remember? Do you remember riding around town with the windows rolled down and you were just singing so loud? Do you remember what it was like? I remember what it was like where my would ride and the windows would be rolled down and I would sing so loud and I wouldn't care who heard me. Tears would stream down my face at the red light and I wasn't ashamed. Somewhere along the way, something happened. Somewhere along the way, we saw... New carts that looked good and easy. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling you back. Do you remember when it was just me and you running through the fields? When it was just me and you and you were dreaming? If you're in this place this morning, if you're here, everyone, every head bowed, every eye closed, because I see tears streaming down people's face all over this building this morning as God is touching hearts. I don't want you to look around. I don't want you to, to focus on anything else. I want you to focus on your heart. I want you to do an oil check right now under the hood of your heart and just, just ask the Father. Ask the Father. If you're not where you once were to get you there this morning, all it takes is just a simple deep breath and just a Father, I want you. Father, I need you. 
And if you don't know how to do that or you don't really want him, but just the want to want him, just ask him, God, I want to want you more. If that's you and you feel like God's doing something in your heart right now and you need to be brought back to first love, if you were ever in any other time in your life more in love with him than you are now, you fit into this category and you just want to love him again. You just want to burn for him again. If that's you, I want to see your hand go up high right now, just real high. If your hand's up, I want you to stand up real quick. Hands up all over this building. Now on the count of three, on the count of three, I want you to not think about it. I want you to come to this altar. One... Two, three, all over this building. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. He's taking you back. You have been listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.